0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Scholars at Play, a podcast dedicated to the critical discussion of games and their place in society and the academy. My name is Derek Price, and I am joined today, as always, by Terrell Taylor. What's up? Kyle Romero. Hello. And a very special, very new guest – Doctor Designatus Ted Dawson. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Everyone clap for the doctor. Sounds really good on Thank audio, you. guys. Yeah, clapping, clapping okay, is always great. good. Um, so Ted Ted is a is a, a colleague of mine, a friend of mine in the German department. Who is I don't re- care for him. Who is? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I didn't say he was your friend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. I think you're cool, Ted. Um, who recently defended successfully his dissertation. So congratulations to you, Ted. Ted, do you want to speak for yourself and let the people know who you are? Sure. I guess I've uh, come into my own as a voice-having individual. (laughs) Exactly. Um,
1: By virtue of my my degree, uh, a degree which none of the rest of you guys have. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Do you
2: see why I don't like him? Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sure. So uh, my work is uh, actually traditionally on uh, sound studies and German literature, um, which is – my dissertation uh, was about um, Austrian rap music and um, a lot of really cool things about that that I'm not going to go into because they are not uh, germane to our current discussion. Uh, What is germane to our current discussion is kind of where my work is going now. Uh, which is more in a direction of eco-criticism and environmental humanities. uh, And the thing I'm into in one short phrase is the relationship of aesthetic experience and the material world. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's really cool. I mean I think that's been like a sort of background recurring theme for a lot of the stuff that we've been thinking about um, here on the podcast as well. Um, And today we're talking about the end of the world. Yep. We had a good run. We did. But we had an, this, an okay run. If it's not the end of the world, it's at the very least the beginning of a new age, the Anthropocene. It is the end of the world as we know it. This is true, right? But exactly. I feel fine. No, <laughs> the, okay. I know that was a quote, but like the knowledge thing is actually very important for the discussion. It's like literally the way we oh, know yeah. the world. I've thought it all. Oh that. yeah, you know. <laughs> Um. Uh, so we're talking about something called the Anthropocene. Kyle, what does Anthropocene mean?
2: Anthropocene is a fancy Greek word. Yeah. That basically translates to uh, human or humanity mm-hmm. age. Yeah. yeah. Um. And so basically, what it means is it's a word uh, developed by some guy whose name Paul Crutzen. Sk- Paul Crutzen. Boom. Who uh, articulated that he he thought we needed a new way of thinking about um. The age that we're living in now, what like some people call the modern world or the contemporary world, the globalized world. There's a lot of different like different terms and uh, like, you know, things – ways to think about it. But he's – basically the Anthropocene, which is his term, is that it's the age where humanity first started like affecting global – um, like the global order, yeah. or like the glo- the, the yeah. geological order. Yeah. So like before the Anthropocene was the Holocene, right. which is the pure Holocene. I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, yeah. Holocene. 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 I feel like Holocene. I mean there's
1: I, – I should also add that there's a debate amongst at least humanities people, though probably not a, amongst real scientists, about how the word Anthropocene is pronounced, uh, sort of oh. the Anthropocene versus the Anthropocene. Oh. Yes.
2: Oh. I did just look, up, look it up to make sure and the internet says Anthropocene. But Anthropocene. I don't know.
1: I, I mean, I also say Anthropocene. If you're going I, from the
2: Greek, it would be anthroposenos. Well. That's what I was – that's why I threw it to you, Kyle. <laughs> oh, OK. I cool. Knew you, I knew you had that. <laughs> From the Greek. Can umpros. you help us
1: imagine the uh, shape of the Greek letters involved in spelling? So, that? I mean, the, the
2: key <laughs> letter there, the O, would be an uh, omicron, uh, which is pronounced "o" as opposed uh, to the <laughs> omega, which is "o," because Greek is a highly is a phonetic language. So, oh, okay, I'm done. Sorry, <laughs> I'm tapping you out. I'm not the host this week or this month, <laughs> so unfortunately, <laughs> I can't. I have to. I have to
3: nail it. Yeah, I you're not allowed control. to be the host or have access to tape or rope anymore. Yeah, that. Yeah, it didn't work out super
2: well. Yeah, For those of you who haven't listened to our previous <laughs> episode and are confused by Terrell's comment, yeah. I tied Derek se- and Terrell up in order it's to talk about secret. history. It's not a secret; I thought it, it was be a secret.
0: Okay, um, so we're the the we're, we want to talk a little bit and like come to like beyond just that definition of the Anthropocene as the age of man. Want to try and think about why that might be important? There's a there's a big TED as as you're very well aware. There's like a big turn in humanities studies and thinking about. Climate change, um, ecology, and 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 what that means, what the Anthropocene means for us as as humans. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna be we're gonna be working through that again. As Kyle already mentioned, this this there's like the Anthropocene is a geological concept, which is not a concept that us humanities folk tend to engage with. But I think uh, there's some really interesting research that has made the case that humanists need to be thinking about this as well. Um, And then we're going to be looking at uh, some other sort of isms and stuff like that, so eco-criticism and eco-activism. We're going to be doing it through the lens of what some people will refer to as serious games, Um, games that are, like, intentionally trying to make some sort of argument or have some sort of purpose behind them, Uh, whether it's educational. Some would call them propagandistic. Um, You know, these are all – like, these serious games are, like, not meant primarily to entertain but to get something across. Um, so uh, in order to sort of work through the idea of the Anthropocene and eco-criticism, we're going to take a look at a couple of different texts and a couple of different games. The first one is uh, what, you know, Ted refer- told me and I, I can see why he said this, a sort of classic in, the, in thinking about Anthropoc- uh, the Anthropocene, which is an article by a, a historian named Deepesh Chakrabarty. Um, the, the essay is called The Climate of History for Theses. And we're going to take a look at this in order to sort of understand what global warming, the Anthropocene, uh, and, like, humanity becoming a geological force means for our understanding of history but also for, like, the humanities in general and maybe even, like, humanity in general, right? So at that broadest level. Then we're going to be uh, chatting a little bit about a game that we all played called Fate of the World. It's a game by uh – uh, a developer called Red Redemption. There's no dead in there, just Red Redemption. This came out in uh, 2011. It's a game sort of dealing with climate change and global warming and trying to think about how national policy has sort of global effects and how you, how how national policy decisions get made and how they they can they can impact that um, the globe in a larger sense. Um, we're also going to probably take a, a touch on a, a short piece by Hans-Jochen Backe called Green Shifting Game Studies, which is in a on a great um, website called First Person Scholar. If you're not familiar with that website, go check it out. It's a fantastic resource for um, – they call themselves a middle state publication. So it's not exactly an academic journal, but it's not just sort of like a popular um, sort of uh, you know, criticism outlet. They, they, they call themselves – I think it's a really interesting um, publishing model that they have there where there's some sort of there's, – there's methods of peer review still at, at work there, but the, the audience is, is meant to be broader than just – uh, specialists, So I think that's a really cool publication. So we're going to take a look at his piece. Um, there's another piece by Megan Condis called Live in Your World, Play in Ours, Video Games, Critical Play, and the Environmental Humanities. And then we're also going to take a, a little bit of time to talk about the controversial – I don't know. It, there was a controversy around the game, whether or not the game itself is controversial, is for us to talk about. But called uh, Thunderbird Strike. And that was made by uh, a professor at uh, MSU named Dr. Elizabeth Lapensée. Um, so, yeah, uh, in order to structure a conversation, I think we tend to focus mostly on texts. And we're going to try a slightly different approach for this episode. We want to sort of um, structure our conversation around some concepts and answering a few key questions. And the first of those is just, you know, we've been talking, we're already talking a lot about it, but what is the Anthropocene and what does it mean for us to move into it? Um, how does the Anthropocene or ecology or eco critical thinking? Demand a change in the way that we think about ourselves and our place in the world, and so that com- we'll have that conversation. But we also want to think about how can or do games help us understand humanity's new ecological place in the world? How do they promote? Uh, how do they promote a new understanding, or, or even do more than that and sort of critique, or even serve as activism? Um, if they do this, maybe we'll we'll come to the conclusion that these games don't necessarily do that, um, and then of course. Uh, You know, and and we'll be thinking through that through our specific examples. So I want to get us right into the discussion. And I just want to pose the question broadly once more. (laughs) What is the Anthropocene? What does it mean? Why is this concept important or valuable or interesting for us? What is the Anthropocene?
1: Yeah. um, Well, I will jump in with my thoughts on that. Uh, Please do. So – I think uh, Kyle mentioned earlier in his very fantastic description uh, provided by a very fantastic man. Uh, <laughs>
2: you're, you're all right, Ted. Yeah. You're OK. He's one and back over. I knew I, 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 you're I a had cool some, guy. I
1: had some ground to make up. Um, apparently, I don't have to impress Terrell so um, <laughs> because he already said I was OK. Um, so… Uh, Just OK. But… <laughs> OK. Uh, so… I think uh, the, the the question of sort of geologic agency is really important mm-hmm. to the Anthropocene, uh, as, as Kyle mentioned. Um, and I think a really important distinction in in thinking about that is the difference between like geologic agency and biological agency, which um, Chakrabarty mentions but I think is, is something that's not so much part of Chakrabarty's argument. It's just an interesting thought about the Anthropocene generally. Um, Because sort of the idea that humans – right? If if you take this really basic idea of what is the Anthropocene and say, oh, well, it's humans uh, changing the world. Well, that seems a little bit overly simplified, right? And it seems a little bit like, well, isn't that – Hasn't that always been the case, right? What about um, – you know, I mean even there are these arguments that people will give that may or may not be true that say the Sahara Desert is essentially the result of agriculture, right? right? So that seems like people changing the world. But even supposing that's not the case, uh, certainly, right, deforestation, the overhunting of species uh, that you know, people even you – know, so-called primitive societies have hunted many large quadrupeds to extinction in the mm-hmm. history of, of humanity. Um, and and what the Anthropocene is saying essentially is, no, that's not really a big deal. That stuff is like lots of species do that kind of stuff and, and people have always done that kind of stuff, sure. Uh, but something substantially different has happened um, in – you get different datings. Sometimes you say the last 250 years. Sometimes it's only since uh, World War II. Um, sometimes you do have these longer definitions of the Anthropocene. But uh, because it's the one Chakrabarty uses and – we're going to talk about it in brief uh, shortly. I think the 250-year definition is, is is pretty helpful, um, and you know it's it's the definition basically. It's all about global warming, right? It's the definition that aligns with ice core samples showing increased CO2 distributions. Uh, it's the definition that aligns with the invention of the steam engine. It's the definition. Uh, I think this is something that maybe we can talk about later. That aligns with uh, Kant releasing the critique critique of pure reason, uh, which uh, has some pretty serious repercussions for how humans think about themselves and think about the world around them. Um, and that then is uh, this big shift saying that you know, humans have now become not just another animal making little changes in the environment but a geologic agent.
0: Yeah. Um, so maybe, maybe if you're listening, that all checks out. I think it all sounds pretty good. Why would this term be controversial at all? Like why would anyone be like, nah, the Anthropocene isn't a real thing? Like what, what would be the stakes of accepting
2: this term? I think there are multiple sides. There is the obvious disavowal of that. Who are the people nowadays who disavow that climate change exists, right? Yeah, like right. clearly, you know, um, there's like uh, – Chakrabarty talks about this a little bit too. It's like there's a stake in politics to saying that climate change is real because that's a long-term problem that has huge systemic uh, – that can cause huge systemic damage to the world – uh, but that's not what politics does. Politics solves short-term problems, right? And so there are people who, as we all know, I'm assuming, in the United States and abroad, who deny the existence of climate change. So that's one. I think something that uh, – when I think about the Anthropocene, that my initial skepticism of it was, is this the, the dominant way that we want to think about the past 200 to 250 years? What I, I would – I think is kind of traditionally called like the modern world, right? Um and so my initial skepticism was that it it, it was too broad, and that it's was, it was my same critiques of like what the modern world is. I'm like, okay, are you telling me that the modern world in 1800 is the same thing that's going to exist in 1950 or 1910, mm-hmm. or even let alone that in Britain, in India, in um, mm-hmm. Nigeria, in Japan, right? Um, and so I, I don't think that people, you know, the person who invented the term Anthropocene or those who have adopted it really do think that like oh, yes, this is, everything is the same during this period. I, I do by no means mean to simplify that. And I think I've kind of in my own thinking moved past that as a, it is a meaningful way to uh, chronologize, to like put a chronology on this period, not the only one, but a meaningful one. Um, but I think that's another kind of take against it.
0: Yeah, I think that question of periodization is like a is one of the tensions and like one of the reasons why people push back on this Anthropocene idea. Um I think another one is that like based on Chakrabarty's audience here, who is like the 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 readership of Critical Inquiry, like a really prestigious, like really well-known um journal uh in the humanities, um you know, known across the world, uh is that there's a the long, you know, tradition of scholarship thinking about globalization and capitalism and critiquing that. And um, I think maybe someone from that position could be saying that you want to generalize the effects of capitalism or the effects of, like, colonization or something like that into, like, a broad geological sense. But no, 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 no. This is all just capital. It's always been capital, right? And Chakrabarty is really good at sort of – addressing that concern and sort of moving beyond it. He he wants us to not he, – he's like, yes, yes and basically, right? He wants to say that you know we need to be able to think about globalization and, and critique the effects of capital and sort of trace that but also be able to think about global warming together with that. Um, and so he thinks that the Anthropocene is going to be a term that allows us to reconceptualize our place in the world. Um, and I, I think, you know, a couple of other authors are, are putting it a little bit more – put it in a different way than Chakrabarty. Chakrabarty is very careful about the way he formulates this. But I think someone like Condis um, uh, or, or uh, Baca in their piece – I can't remember exactly who says this uh, – says that like we just need to think – we need to adopt different perspectives literally like a decentered human perspective, right? So that humanity is just one part of the globe, one form of life on the globe which is intersecting with other species and sort of relies on those other species. And and this shift towards thinking of ourselves as a geological force moves us into sort of the natural category and that this is a really troublesome move for people who are invested in a sense of history that is like history is human, right? I think this is something I've you – know, a, a mutual colleague of ours, Sarah Nelson, has sort of – uh, in seminars that I've been in with her has really made the made this case really clearly that like history is what humans do. There are definitely things that happen that are not human, but those but history is about the about purposive human. Activity. We are telling a narrative of like our shared human existence. Exactly, and that leaves certain things out, like basic like human biological drives, like the fact that we eat or the fact that we reproduce. I mean, th- those things have meaning for humans they can they do have like meaningful um consequences culturally attached exactly yeah. but it's it's important that they that the 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 history is is thinking about their social and cultural importance yeah. not their basic biological yeah. existence
3: i think one of the better criticisms of the anthropocene that doesn't want to throw it out entirely but does kind of put it in its place would probably push back Maybe say that it doesn't go far enough because I think one of the major moves within the Anthropocene is that it um, it troubles the distinction between natural history and human history, and that's a great move. But there are other ways to do it besides just simply thinking of humans as a geological force. So, for example, um, one thinker by the name of Sylvia Winter posits that same time period. You know, thinking about what would have been going on um, two hundred and fifty years ago with the Industrial Revolution, as the formation of a certain type of human life, right? And that type of human life was one that was predicated on using the steam engine and a number of other inventions to encourage certain forms of consumption, certain forms of habits that then sort of made it possible or made it necessary to use coal in a particular type of way, such that those sort of innovations on behalf of the human had biological or biosocial implications that then led to various other sort of ramifications. That Just saying, like, yes, humanity has become this geological force. It's like, well, yeah, but there are also those sort of forces of imperialism, capitalism, so on and so forth, created different forms of life, and some of those have certain agencies over others, right? And I don't necessarily think that that necessarily proves the Anthropocene wrong, but I think it creates a certain set of expectations, or a certain set of considerations that... Um, I'm trying to be very charitable to Chakrabarti's article because I think he does so much work on the sort of first thesis and the second thesis, but it's the third and fourth thesis that really begin to start really breaking
2: down and thinking about
3: some of these alternative criticisms.
2: Yeah, and so just uh, it would probably be good to explain a little bit of what Chakrabarti is saying. And I think uh, building on what you guys just said, I think his core point, you know, the he he does have these four theses. It's in his title, and it's kind of the 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 four the. So, structure the structure of, the of his article. Um, but he starts basically with this with this, uh, like articulation. He says that we need to stop this kind of artificial distinction between natural history and human history. And in this, I mean as a historian, like it felt particularly directed at me. He was saying like <laughs> historians – and, you know, Debesh Chakrabarty is a historian, one like a very, very famous historian. Um, and he says basically that historians have been really, really bad – about doing natural history. Or or we've we've put up disciplinary bl- blinders so firmly that we can only imagine history as human as the history of humans, what R. G. Collingswood called the history of human affairs, right? Um, who I believe we actually talked about R. G. Collingswood on the last episode too and, as well. Jock yeah. um, quotes uh, Collingswood and also croce?
0: Croce? Croce? I have no idea. C R O C E yeah. as as putting forth exactly that what yeah. you're saying.
2: Yeah. And so, what he wants to do, because he 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 kind of opens with this you know personal narrative about and that, what what does it mean to imagine a world without humans, right? There's all these you know documentaries and movies and TV shows and and books about this now, um, and it, it struck him as a kind of thing that he's like, as a historian, I'm totally unprepared to think about, because I think when we imagine the past, we're also simultaneously imagining the future, right? And we cannot imagine a future without humans. Uh, if in this kind of canon of texts that we've studied, right? So that's kind of his core question is like, what does it mean to imagine a future without humans? And how does that impact the way that we write our own histories? Should that maybe, I think he kind of concludes, tell us that humans shouldn't be the main focus of every history, right? Right, that they should not be the only thing that we think about.
0: Or that there's like a – there's a meaningful sen- – there is a meaningful – things that are not human are meaningful to human history, yes. right? And or I, to history. Or to history, period, right? Which right, right, can exactly. exist
2: without, you know, like, like natural history, which, you know, like the you know, Museum of Natural History is about rocks and dinosaurs and things like that, and humans don't really show up. And a museum of history is about art and paintings and, you know, statues and stuff, right? So b- those are two kind of like artificial distinctions, he's arguing, that have real consequences for the way that we practice uh, this, this form of history, these forms of history. And to pick up on something that Ted said, mentioning Kant
0: and like discussions of the enlightenment and freedom versus maybe some sort of determination, um, again, one might say, okay, why would it matter? Like, okay, I get the Anthropocene. I get the debate there. Why would it matter to reduce natural and human history together? And I think, you know, in this the second thesis that he that he structures this around is that the idea of the Anthropocene, the new geological epoch, uh, when humans exist as a geological force, severely qualifies humanist histories of modernity slash globalization. Part of the part of this section that he writes is all about thinking about the the, the history of the discourse about freedom, about human freedom, what it's predicated on, and how that could be totally challenged by uh, by making by merging human and natural history together right because one of the points that he makes is and, and Ted feel free to jump in here but like that like um it's very much the case that like the enlightenment discourse appears at exactly as you said Ted at the exact same time that we start bur- that we start have the steam engine right that we start having indust like whatever the industrial revolution is that that starts happening right
1: i think there's something uh- Quite interesting there, uh, because you have actually a much longer discourse that this is that this is participating in as well. And, and Chakravarty is very much aware of that of the idea that he's simultaneously discussing kind of you know developments in Western, the west, the so-called Western tradition, sort of in the last two hundred fifty years, but also the much longer Western tradition that goes back to ancient Greece. Um, and the the thing that I'm so struck by reading this section of the article, actually, uh, this the second thesis, is uh, there's an essentially tragic structure to his argument, right? This is the the basic theory of tragedy uh, that you know, especially in Germany, especially with Hegel. But my my favorite articulation is um, Schelling's articulation of of tragedy as uh, sort of you know a. a Opposition between human freedom and necessity, right, and that of course there's this dialectical movement between freedom and necessity, and ultimately some kind of synthesis. Uh, but that you know what what happens in a tragedy, then, in, and and when I'm saying tragedy now, I'm meaning like as in Oedipus, right? We're talking like Greek tragedy, is uh, that ultimately human freedom seems to be illusory uh, and turns out not to be able to escape the terms of necessity, right, um, and this second section of the article then in in sort of looking at freedom and this question of uh you know I, I think as chakrabardi puts it right that that human freedom is built on uh fossil fuels essentially uh, but so there's that that piece of it but then there is this much longer thought about uh you know how humans can be free at all, and in this what that is to me what the geologic agency then implies is that we've moved into – via our geologic agency into a question of what we perceive as our freedom is at the same time creating new constraints, uh, is contributing to the necessity uh, and that sort of builds to this ultimate tragedy, the synthesis of which appears to be what we're trying to get at with games like Fate of the World.
0: Yeah, um, yeah.
3: It's interesting. It just presents a way – and I've never thought about reading this piece because I've, I've read it ago many, many years ago um, – but the thing that I've never realized until now and thinking about it from the frame of tragedy is that part of you know the question of progress or the question of expansion or growth is these kind of ideas that really matter. Yeah, they can have all types of various problems amongst themselves as we think about the various consequences of them. But the other problem is, is that as you grow, it's like, great. But now you are contending with forces that are on – par with you, right? And it's not so much like, yeah, maybe you've learned to control X many different things that would usually have been a hindrance to progress, right? I think a lot of things within modernism often deal with that. It's like, how has humanity dealt with the particular limits to its growth or expectations? How has it dealt with the earth in various ways and sort of tamed it? What have been the consequences of that? But, you know, the Anthropocene, thinking about that as, yes, you've reached this now, but now... You literally have to wrestle with the gods that once trampled you, so to speak, if you – I don't know if that's the most articulate way to phrase that, but it's just like a weird – it's a weird thing that the frame of the Anthropocene allows us to say about human history in that tragic sense. Yeah.
1: Um, absolutely, and I think also this might be a, a comment better placed later in in our discussion. But uh, to sort of conclude, Schelling—the reason that I find Schelling's articulation of tragedy so compelling—is the ultimate uh, synthesis for him of this dialectical uh, moment: is where the human freely elects to punish himself for his transgressions, which he necessarily undertook. Right, so that's the you know Oedipus stabbing out his eyes. Uh, this moment where Oedipus says, oh, there's really – I couldn't actually have escaped this, yet I'm going to punish myself, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and, and I think um, you know, when we turn to a game like Fate of the World and you imagine these like Doctor Doom scenarios, one wonders if we can make that compatible with an idea of, of, of the tragic <laughs> uh, in which we punish ourselves for – rather than saying we can solve global warming, we say, wow, we necessarily are committing this sin. Uh, I guess let's
0: just like Go all in and let's end. do what we need to do to ourselves, like, right? What we deserve, yeah, right, yeah. That's great. Um, I, I almost hate to like just bring there, there's one other really big <laughs> like y'all just had such a great thing there, but like the uh, one, the one other in my mind, key concept in Chakrabarty's article that's really helpful for us is the idea of species, um, which is just like obviously it's a biological term, like it's not a new term or anything, but um, Chakrabarty is really interrogating what that means for humanists and. He, you know, basically a lot of – he he sort of works through a couple of the people who have written broadly about climate change and who have sort of made broad gestures to like we need to take care of our resources better and really try and work together or something like that. These sort of broad uh, – not platitudes. It's too strong. But um, they use the language of species, right? We have to start thinking as a species. And one of the challenges of that is that you don't experience being part of a species, uh, there's no phenomenology of the species and, you know, species – thinking of yourself as a species goes along with this taking part, thinking, you know, bringing natural history and human history together where this is a thing we partake in and we know that at a, like a geological sense that we have this effect as a species but we don't have that analog in our own personal experience.
2: Hmm. Mm.
1: Yeah, and well, and that's I think I mean the the species idea I think ties in also to something you mentioned earlier, Derek, of the the ways uh, the critiques one might have of the Anthropocene idea, and especially as Chakrabarty is articulating it here, and as he is very aware, this is where the the sort of traditional Marxist critique is going to start to say, hey, hey, now, right, uh, species thinking, uh, class thinking, dude, right, like yeah, a, right. essentially being like, yeah. no,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's you are suddenly making you know. A geologic problem out of what is essentially a class uh, and capital problem, yeah, right?
2: Or, right. Uh, yeah, or even more so. Like, I- imagine you're in the quote-unquote developing world, and you hear people talking about like the impending Anthropocene, you know, colla- like collapse of global climate change. Climate change, and you're like. Okay, this just sounds more like imperialism, right? right? This is just an excuse to like, ignore the importance of race, racial and class oh, oppression.
1: N- no, no, Kyle, right? we're all in it together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
3: great. Right. Right. Yeah. The disproportionate impacts of things like superstorms on
2: yeah. um, the global south, let's yeah. say. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a much better term.
1: Yeah. Right. And the global south, right? I mean that's the point. I mean the idea of a global south seems actually specifically opposed to the idea of species thinking, right? And that's right, and exactly. that's where you're going to run into big yeah. problems with this argument. Uh, and I think – I mean Chakrabarty I don't think is trying to like bulldoze over that. But I think he's actually yeah. quite con- conscious of that yep. and is trying to find a way to save both, right? To have species thinking while at the same time not just sort of trying to say let's like – let's all just hold hands. Who cares yeah. about the like – structural inequalities
2: built in over – Let's not think about uh, how we got here. Let's just move (laughs) forward forward. together. Because yeah, just for reference to me, Chakrabarty is one of the like most famous post-colonial theorists, right? So he was one of the first people to really articulate the idea that not only was – has historically like power rested in the West but even in academia today like – E- basic conceptions of time, sovereignty, space are just all dominated by like Western thinking, and that we need to stop that.
1: Yes, <laughs> right. And and actually, on that note, I think it's interesting. Uh, this this article that we are reading was, in fact, uh, as a note says, first published in Bengali. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there you go. Right. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: That's yeah. interesting. Well. Um, I think I think we could we could move on to our game, but there's one last thing I want to – one last thing I want to touch on, which is Chakrabarty sort of hints at what the Anthropocene means for us. But let's ask ourselves this question explicitly. What does ecological thinking require? What kind of perspect- perspectival shift do we need?
2: Yeah, I just want to – and this is kind of answering that but also something I wanted to bring up um, – I just felt remiss if I wouldn't didn't bring up a historian that Chakrabarty doesn't mention. Okay. who mm-hmm. I who uh, his name is Richard White. He wrote a book called The Organic Machine. Um, he's actually written lots of books, but um, lots of really really important and famous books. But uh, he wrote this little tiny hundred-page environmental history called The Organic Machine that I feel like answers a lot of what Chakrabarty's is talking about. And he wrote it in 1986. You know, oh, and wow. so. What kind of – yeah, so it kind of shocks me. And so that, this is this tiny little book basically about um, the building of a dam on the Colorado River I believe. Um, and it, it's, it basically says that we need to rethink the way that we think about the environment. Building on uh, something that like Leo Marx talks about in The Machine in the Garden, which is that essential to like ideas of the, of the modern is a dichotomy between the human and the machine. And he basically says we need to get rid of that. That's not a thing that is useful anymore. And so he says we need to think of all work in terms of energy, mm-hmm. right? And so in the damming of the in the damming of the Colorado River, right? We only ever think of like, okay, well these humans came in and they they you know they spoiled this beautiful natural thing. And he's like, okay, a salmon. He talks a lot about salmon. Gets its energy from the sun. It then turns that into movement, blah, 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 blah. He's like the same thing with water. Water like moves for these reasons, et cetera, et cetera. Humans move for these reasons. Mm-hmm. And humans build machines that harness the energy of the water. Humans build salmon catching nets that harness the energy of the salmon to produce calories, right? And it's, it's an argument that like at a fundamental level you can't write you know like a book about – the British Empire by saying like, well, you know, they were eating this and that was this many calories, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was basically saying we need to think more we, – we need to, one, break down this kind of artificial dichotomy. There's a lot of artificial dichotomies uh, between hum- the natural and the unnatural, like the human um, nature and humanity, but also that we should think about um, the world in terms of like expressed energy and that I think is a really good way, neat way of kind of sidestepping like – the human centered uh, histories versus the natural histories is that they're actually kind of talking about the same thing it's just the usage of energy for different purposes um yeah
1: yeah. So uh, going off what Kyle was saying, I think um, this would be a good moment for sort of like a short history of eco ecocriticism. Um, and uh, I mean short both in the sense that I will hopefully be brief in my remarks, but also in the sense that uh, you could sort of cast eco-criticism as something going back hundreds of years, but you could also sort of see it as a phenomenon beginning in the 70s. Um, and in that reading, um, basically beginning in the 1970s, at the same time, that sort of cultural studies is blowing up in lots of different directions and we're finding lots of new sort of uh, prisms through which to parse texts that have been long understood in sort of historical modes, um, one of these sort of new vectors of analysis becomes eco-criticism, becomes thinking about things in environmental terms. Uh, and while I'm unfortunately not familiar with uh, White's work, um, which I'd love to talk to you about later, uh, Kyle, uh, I, um, Leo Marx is, is sort of one of the key figures in this, um, as is Raymond Williams. Uh, so, the sort of first what 's now thought of as the first wave of eco criticism um kind of is like largely thinking just about like nature and how awesome nature is and how like we're kind of humans and nature's kind of nature and isn 't that neat um and so like uh if if I wanted to say it uh in purely literary terms uh as the being a scholar of literature and maybe Kyle can like Fix all of the things I'm leaving out on the historical side. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but um, and maybe don't, all don't, the don't feed him. Don't don't <laughs> don't don't don't. don't, don't uh, hopefully, probably. Kyle can fix all of my shortcomings. Um, <laughs> we'll just, I'll try my best. Now. <laughs> uh, so, the uh, in 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 literary terms, basically, f- sort of what's now called first wave eco criticism is like. All about Thoreau and mm-hmm. you know romantics and like every you know people that are like talking about nature, and mm-hmm. then we can go and look at how they 're talking about nature and be like isn 't that cool uh, and we 're now doing something uh, that people call second wave eco criticism and I should note second wave obviously this is like this terminology is drawing from feminism um, and that 's not a coincidence um, and you know second wave eco criticism is essentially. Take doing the same thing that uh, feminist scholarship was already doing a little bit earlier because uh, second wave ego criticisms are beginning like 1990s and especially in this century. You have people essentially saying, wait a second. These, these same kinds of modes of thinking could be applied to anything. It's not just texts about nature. It could be uh, texts about the city. It could be texts that don't seem to be about nature at all that in fact looking through this lens of uh, you know, human – as, as Party would say humanist geologic agent uh, – Opens whole new avenues for understanding everything, and suddenly every text can sort of become an index of human destruction of the environment uh, and our, the, the sort of shift of that thinking is in part obviously a response to global warming as a as a crisis that we are all wildly aware of, um, and sort of the move from you know people being like, "Oh, pollution is bad, DDT and sort of these smaller scale emergencies to a uh, planet wide emergency. Uh, but it's also just a an evolution of the field uh coming into its own as many other kinds of cultural studies did, yeah um, I have a question, and
3: not sure what it's worth um in terms of eco criticism and its history uh do people consider um heidegger's the question concerning technology is a part of that or not? Nah?
1: Well, so that's I mean that's the you know the short history, the long history of eco-criticism, sure. right? So certainly people, uh, eco-critics now have resuscitated all kinds of different uh, thinkers. Um, Heidegger is in you know I mean Heidegger's an infinitely problematic figure for so many reasons, but uh, um, I think essentially actually a way to to recast what I just said would be to say first wave eco-criticism would take Heidegger. And be like, philosopher living in the woods, badass. Let's like what can we do with this? Uh, and second wave eco-criticism can still work with Heidegger, mm-hmm. but uh in a in a much more uh critical mode. Yeah, after teasing
3: out all the Nazism, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Heidegger yeah. was a
1: Nazi, just to clarify yeah. in case people That's why are, he's
2: infinitely problematic. <laughs> <laughs> I, Asterisks, so, Yeah. So I, I had a something I forgot about is this is a podcast about video games. Right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I, f- I was, I was just about to get it there. I was just about to get I was it. No, I'm saying like it's,
2: it's on me. Like I was like <laughs> I just really into talking about history, and then I was like, oh yeah, like oh yeah. about video games a
0: bit yeah, too. That's right about games. So two, two things, and these are both from uh, sort of people who do either they're game studies people or they work on games, etc. For them, games present a sort of an interesting opportunity to engage with questions of ecology. Um, one of them, uh, Hans-Joachim Backe, um, sort of writes this piece in First Person Scholar. He's talking about green shifting game studies. And um, he thinks that games, for, for a variety of reasons, says a lot of different stuff in that article. But like, games are interesting because when we think about the ecology, what we've learned is that it is like the, the ecology is not characterized by order or neatly created systems. But it's instead this fragile equilibrium on the constant verge of radical changes. And he sort of makes this comparison to um, the way that the player intrudes into the perfect systems of games, right? So you have these really tightly bound like mechanically – rule or mechanically based systems and then you introduce this player and you bring in all of this – what, you know he makes this list disruptive, transgressive, dark play, the blurring of in game and real life identities, this permeability of the magic circle. The player is this agent which messes up the perfect system, and so there's there 's an, an analogous relationship between thinking about ecology and thinking about the player and how it interacts with the systems of a game, um, and then also um, oh what 's her first name Condis. megan megan Condis' idea that um, you know her her piece is really about uh, um, bringing eco- – like bringing games that address ecology into the classroom and address the environment into the classroom and um, that games offers the uh, ability to sort of inhabit – like to to explore alternative environments but also subjectivities and that this allows us to give us some sort of sense of like a non-human experience and to sort of – or at the very least reject some sort of human essentialism.
1: Okay. So uh, th- this may or may not be a segue but uh, I'm I think Baca's idea about the player as the uh, sort of agent that comes in and disturbs the perfect system uh, is actually um, precisely not what is happening in one of the games that we looked at, um, because that game, in fact, posits the player as the agent who can come in to fix the broken system.
0: Right, and yeah. that and that game is Fate of the World. So you know, I'm going to say that was a segue. Yeah, I think that was a good segue. Yeah. That was great. The, 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 the council passed. has
1: ruled. <laughs> Th- that was my first podcast segue. Give, again, give, our, so.
0: give, us our, give us the official ruling. Steve, what do you think? Yeah, he agrees. Great. Right. So we're talking about games now. Um, who would like to tell me what fate of the world is besides a game released in 2011 by developer Red Redemption.
2: Well, I think the we, there's a review of it on uh, PC Gamer that I believe sums it up uh, very well. Yeah. It opens with the lovely three-word phrase, well, we're boned.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good.
2: It's a really good yeah. – I like that review a lot. Uh, Fate of the World is is a game about, um, you know, essentially you're trying to save the world. Um, in terms of gameplay, it's I mean I would call it like a card game. For sure. Um, basically you're just playing these cards that offer different – um, development programs or policies on like a, a big global map and in different regions depending on which kind of play style you, uh, play campaign you play through so mm-hmm. you can be in Africa or Asia or North America or whatever. whatever um, in these just large regions maybe there's 15 or 20 in the whole world you play these different cards that focus on developing infrastructure education technology um, uh, environmental protection, welfare programs welfare program, you know all these like kind of big infrastructural things that can both exacerbate global climate change mm-hmm. as well as potentially reduce the risk of global climate change and so you have to balance those big concerns and then you play a turn and then 5 years go by and you see did your actions have any effect you know did they make the climate rise a little bit did they kill all the polar bears did your actions you know raise the gdp of north right. america right. um which was always the goal right <laughs> is to raise gdp <laughs> Um, yeah and so that's kind of the basic play of the game, and it's one of those games that is very easy to learn but also just like startlingly complex to where once you're kind- you're managing it at, at at you know mid mid game twenty different uh regions all of which have six different card playing options with dozens of different cards, and it can get very kind of like um heavy on your head, which maybe sure. is kind of the point right that yeah. this is not a simple issue well yeah. climate change is not an issue that can be solved very simply.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so I want to I want to pose a question for us to think about. And the first one is just, like, how does Fate of the World position the player? Like, what is the perspective that we have as the player? What do you guys think about this? I want to hear maybe from everybody like what they think about this. Because I have like two thoughts. So my
3: major takeaway, um, thinking back to um, the episode that we recorded on the games that deal with the question of resistance. And I forget what the game's name was that dealt with the camp. Um, mm-hmm. um, if not now, when? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, and thinking about the way that that game has similar or perhaps comparable if not similar um, kind of management system where you're looking at a bunch of different resources and you're thinking about what are the different options that you can do today. It didn't have the card system, but. Um, and how dealing with that game There was a sense of proximity to the camp. Like things would happen and people would sort of talk and the sort of events and the ways that things took place kind of made you feel like you were kind of close to it. And I guess maybe even just the fact that it was a camp and not something like, oh, here are two parts of a continent that you were sort of interfacing with made it feel a little bit more intimate. Whereas I felt very detached while playing this game. Like I had this weird bird's eye view. And the things that it kind of gave me uh, the capacity to keep track of were, like, um, things that, you know, I could only know from a distance. Whereas the things in that game were things more like, oh, here are what our resources look like. And I could, like, walk into, like, a tent and see, oh, that's what we have there.
0: Right. So, like, real quick, like, visually what the game looks like, there is literally a globe, a 3D modeled globe that you can rotate and look at. And then there's a bunch of menus and then the cards that you can play. So, like, that – that visual perspective, I think, is is important for thinking about perspective. What yeah. did you guys think about? The, what, where is the player? Like, what is the perspective of
2: the player? Well, I mean, you're told at the start that you are the president of the GEO, mm-hmm. which is this new. A uh, global global environmental, environmental organization, organization. I think, yeah, which like has apparently immense power and control, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> over yeah. Yeah. immense centralized power and control over like the environmental, you know, but only
3: like five hundred dollars to begin with, right. indeed.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, I think you know, echoing something that we said in the last podcast, you are. Like if in civilization you are the Hegelian nation spirit, right, like incarnate uh, floating above your land that exists as a separate entity. In this you are the Hegelian spirit, nation spirit of like international cooperation and progress uh, focused on the environment.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, uh, absolutely agree with that that sort of. Standpoint. I mean, I, I, my feeling, just to my, my naive answer to your question, Derek, is that you're God. Uh, but you are, but you are God, the capitalist manager, right? You yes. are not. I mean, you you uh, are not omnipotent, really. You are omnipotent within the confines of a basically neoliberal worldview, uh, mm-hmm. which is um, perhaps something to come back to. I, I, yeah. I wonder though if we could. Talk a little about the intro to the game. Yeah, sure. But on, sure. On, what, do you, what do you think? Because, because this idea that you're the yeah. GEO president, yeah. uh, right? The the game, you know, you start with this little intro sequence where it's like, oh, in an age of total environmental collapse where yeah. people are going to die, yep, what yep. can you do, right? Yep. Um, and it's, it's a really wacky sequence in a, se- in a couple ways. Uh, so, right, this is, this is before the Paris Agreement. And uh, and but then it imagines the Paris Agreement essentially. Uh, and but it's it's comically optimistic in that it posits what is basically the Paris Agreement as happening a couple years later, so in twenty twenty, and being way more powerful. In yeah. that rather than just sort of this pact, uh, it comes out as creating this organization that will run the world because basically uh, regular government has failed. Um, yeah. yeah. But uh, there, there's also some strange prescient moments in there, like in 2018. There's the first hypercane, which, while perhaps the funny word hypercane uh, is not used by us, I think thinking back to you know 2017, where we had. Uh, In in our little corner of the globe, right, all of these massive hurricanes coming one after the other followed by just recently uh, where in New England, right, we had these three huge storms right on the tail. It's sort of this sort of hypercane condition seems to be happening Mm -hmm. uh, just as predicted by the game. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) But then they give the polar bear several decades before it will be extinct, which is optimistic in in our minds already. So you note from the perspective of 2018 – this game is already has a far too rosy view of the future of the world.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I agree with all of that. I think that like the position of the player is this like God manager king. Here's here's a here's almost a half-formed thought. What if actually you're playing as the globe? Okay? So the one thing that is always visible on the screen is actually this 3D modeled globe. And if you think about like what you're literally trying like To what end are you doing all of these things? Like, the the different scenarios, like, encourage you to play in certain kinds of ways. You have different goals. But I think visually there's a case to be made that you are to sort of identify not with any particular region but with the whole planet. There's several different map views and none of them are, like, national or even international. They don't, like... They're not focused around borders. They're, they're focused around, like, temperature change and and uh, places where ice has melted. Uh, but none of it ever shows, like, specific nations. Like, there is a Russia region. There's a China region. But there's a North America region and, like, a Latin America. I mean, those those can be problematic as well. But, like, let me just – I'm going to put this out into the air. We don't even have to talk about it. But I feel like there's an argument to say that, like, yes, what you do in the game, all of the the card playing and decision-making – oriented around a sort of managerial, policy-oriented, god-king manager thing. But visually, maybe you're playing as the globe.
2: Maybe that's who you are, actually. Yeah. I I think there's something to that, to the the visual aesthetic of it. But I do think that what Ted was saying about, like, the actual, like, possibilities of play are, and this this is a term that's obviously abused a lot, but, like, are just, like, fundamentally neoliberal. Oh, for sure. And it's something I actually really liked about the game. I mean, because, like— I, I could imagine a game like this where it's like, how do we solve global climate change? Disassemble industry, right? Like, sure, right? Uh, but that the creators of this game, like, put in a very like fine tension. Like, there are positive things you can do, like cap and trade uh, emissions, you know? Um, uh, like, increase uh, edu- education. And these things, you, like, you think that, like, You're like, yeah, I agree with them, but you're like, they're not going to solve it. You know, but you have to think, like, okay, we have to take some steps, right? So a cap and trade, which, you know, we have or we should have in the United States if, you know, freaking Joe Lieberman voted one time anyway. Okay, we would have cap and trade policy in the United States, which basically, you know, would uh, put a. would marketize carbon emissions right? right and like at some level you're like that's just putting carbon emissions into the neoliberal order right? right and making it like a market force you're like but also it could like help a little bit yeah so, yep yeah <laughs> so like maybe we should do that yeah um yeah and so balancing those tensions mm-hmm. and so that's i think in terms of play i think you really are kind of you know imagine if barack obama had had any actual a power you know power and authority in like the global sphere right. um you know, like, was, like, the global president. Mm-hmm. These are, like, the kind of things that wow. he would have wanted to what do. Wow, what a world. Bro. Yeah. Wouldn't that be a lovely world? would <laughs> <It'd> be fine. <laughs> <President> <laughs> Barack Obama for world president. Yeah. Well, you know, these are the kind of things that he would pursue, you know, is, like, like things that are, like, mm-hmm. make market sense, Right, right. right.
1: And, and actually that's my main question to the game is I, I think this idea that essentially it is imagining, you know, Barack Obama as world president yeah. uh, is then um, – is the game ultimately suggesting, wow, what a world we could have had or it didn't at the time realize it was uh, a hypothetical. But uh, – or is it um, actually saying like is, – is it ultimately totally buying into the neoliberal agenda essentially or is it in the final analysis saying even if – Barack Obama were world president, we would still be screwed, right?
0: Yeah. Um, and this is where I think we should talk about our experiences of playing this game. How how did it go for y'all? Like, were you able to save the world?
2: I think, as you guys all know, I am the savior of Africa. <laughs> so it's important that we all know. You should probably we all, contextualize
0: that statement. No, I'm going to just stay with it. No,
2: uh, we all played together. Terrell's and, got that hundred million uh, yard stare. Ted, He's having a geological. I also, I also, right
3: also want to make it very clear that
2: I was not in the room all that happened. So me, Ted, and Derek. Uh, Terrell was taking his comprehensive dreams. <laughs> me, uh, ter- Ted Derek and I played this game together, and we, we all took a stab at the savior of Africa. Or I believe Derek failed to become the savior of Africa. I did. Africa died thanks to Derek, <laughs> and then a man arose, <laughs> and a I, hero, a hero, a god. Yeah, even a human. Is he a human? Maybe he's <laughs> just good at video games. I <laughs> The truest uh, <laughs> gamer, the leadest gamer. <laughs> I, I did. I did complete the intro mission, uh, the savior of Africa, and it. Yeah, and I did name my character, of course, T'Challa, the king of Wakanda. Exactly. Uh, yes. <laughs> and deep uh, sighs and downcast faces. Yeah. And, all around. So there are a bunch of selfies of me with the screen saying, <laughs> "I'm the savior of Africa." Anyway, so that was my experience. Was, was I played that, and then I played a little bit of the global uh, mission. But what I find really interesting is that the intro campaign, the savior to Africa. None of the w- victory conditions have to do with the climate, with That's climate change. true. You right. can screw the climate as much as you want. It's all about increasing mm-hmm. GDP. And I, I think that, like, is an interesting way to start this game that at, at the fundamental level is about global climate change. At the end of every five years, it shows you how the temperature moves and stuff like that. Um, but to start the game with, like, an expression of, like, okay, try to increase GDP – And so I think Derek's kind of problem or the reason he lost was because that he, like, was trying to be environmentally conscious while increasing GDP. And, like, in this game, you can't do that, which, like – I really hope isn't true. Right. No. Or or
0: at least in that scenario, wasn't possible. Yeah. Or, or like I didn't understand like how the cards work yeah. well enough. Yeah. So you're just
2: not the savior of Africa.
0: So, just, right. you know,
1: so to briefly chance. defend the game, although I feel like it really doesn't need that much defending on this point, but uh, in its like neoliberal agenda, uh, you're not trying to increase GDP. You are trying to increase the human development index, the oh. HDI. Okay. That's right. very true. Uh, yeah, I apologize. But, but you, you
3: – the game is very bad about, like, making that clear. I think you have to click on a button to see that, which is yeah. the exact same reason why I failed that mission. Mm-hmm. As I was, like, looking, and every time it would tell me, like, look, this is the projected of this. Five million people died every year, yeah. so on and so forth. And those were the things that were, like, glaring
2: in my face, right. not the
3: actual win state. Right, yeah. Yeah. right. Yeah.
2: And, and the, the the contributing factors to HDI were, like, educational levels and, like, welfare. And, like, life expectancy. Life expectancy, yeah, um, which are, like, increased by the economics cards. It yeah, mostly. the red yards yeah. for those parts.
1: Yeah, and, and I think actually on the question of scenarios we played because I, I will uh, at this point brag and say I subsequently after Kyle had already been savior of Africa, okay. I in playing by myself was also able to be savior of Africa. So it's just Derek. <laughs>
0: uh, I wish
2: I could have No, nah, it was Africa. not just you. It was me too. <laughs> oh, okay, so you guys okay. hate Africa. Got it. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, so you're welcome, Africa. And maybe you know, maybe uh, we can actually
0: at some point take a little – That's me hitting my head against the microphone. Yeah. I'm not cutting that out. Uh,
1: so maybe maybe in a moment we can talk about the various ways in which this game is very essentializing. Uh, but in, including the music and the graphics yeah, for the, the different the music regions, really, really uh, weird. which um, – but uh, perhaps that's really not the uh, f- focus for a – uh anthropocene podcast we just I don't know, we, we name episode. we drop that fact yeah and we move on yeah. yes okay there we go yeah we don't have to really deal with those <laughs> kinds of questions right this is perhaps the other uh criticism that people would have about the anthropocene is it helps us bracket questions of like critical race theory yeah um, that's true so yeah. there we go goodbye um, <laughs> moving so so <laughs> see what i had said
3: earlier about sylvia winter yeah, uh, yeah.
1: there you go um so uh I I did subsequently try to play the uh, Earth Day scenario in which um, basically your only goal – so you start in 2020 and your goal is to survive until the year 2200 uh, and you are given the – Huge freebie of everyone in the world having a green mentality, which is interesting. Wow. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Okay. Which which helps a lot. But uh, the the thing that you also though quickly realize in that scenario that the the saving Africa scenario through which you must play in order to uh, access other scenarios, um, kind of primes you for this idea of a different approach to different regions of the world. That you know, whereas perhaps in Europe or Japan or the United States or Oceania, the region. Uh, you should do things like commit to renewables in Africa and in Latin America and in South Asia, uh, you need to – in the global south, uh, let's say, you need to actually first get the HDI up, right? Otherwise, right. everything else will fail. Um, which is an interesting – the game is very nuanced in that way and you also realize in that – these global scenarios that each region uh, has different variables functioning under it in terms of what each of your cards does and how it functions uh, that's based on development already in those regions. Um, although I think an argument could be made for saying this ultimately still plays into this uh, sort of you know, neoliberal world savior mentality. So
3: just one thing. I mean the review did begin – so we're boned, right? And and looking at the intro, one of the things that struck me about it is, in particular, it made me think of, uh, um, the Jurassic Park games that came out alongside the movie release, because they, in so far as they kind of put you in the the shoes of Grant, you know, this paleontologist who comes in and you know f- fixes this park. You know, they had this intro of, like, look at all these things that are going wrong. We lost power, the velociraptors, and so on and so forth. You have to do this, 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 that, and the other, or the park won't open. Like, yeah, that's the bad part about a bunch of dinosaurs <laughs> right. running around wild. Not people are going to die. The park won't open. We won't be able to sell tickets about it. But beside that, it puts you in this position of, like, you got this, dude. Yeah. Suit up, right, mm-hmm. essentially is what it says. And I felt like that's very much, like, what that intro to this game did. It's, like, suit up. And that's, you know, I, Jurassic Park was the king of mind, but I'm even thinking about some of the intro sequences. They're not very common, but in some of the Sonic the Hedgehog games where it's like, oh, Robotnik comes through and does something really wild. And then, you know, Knuckles or something will shake his fist or Sonic's like, all right, time to go. Right. And my, Super Mario Brothers, et cetera, et cetera. All these things kind of set you up to kind of say like, all right, you got this. Things are bad, but you just showed up on the scene. Right. Yeah. Um, and just thinking about the way that it sets that up, it's got – I think even sometimes the music kind of makes that kind of feel like the case until it's like the fail-state music. But then the game is really, really, really like, nah. So that kind of tension and dissonance is like, yeah, right. come in. think you're doing stuff. But like, mm-mm. And that's mm. not dissonance. That's a resonance in play between those two different registers of the text.
0: Right, right. And I, I think this is this was my experience. So in playing through this game, like I did end up – I did end up individually saving Africa. But um, I tried So then the, it was just Terrell. Yeah. <laughs> well, I tried – so I tried another scenario which was called Oil Fix It mm-hmm. and basically the goal is to – you know they, they set it up as like, hey, we don't have to change anything. We'll just use the profits of oil to pay – to like fix the problems of climate change, right? So we can just like use those profits, reinvest them in infrastructure and defense against erosion and all that stuff and we'll be fine. And so it, like, you know, this each scenario tends to let you play out some, like, possible way forward for us globally as a as a humanity uh, about how we deal with climate change. And um, I made it to 2080. Uh, you start in 2020, 2020 and I made it to 2080. And, uh, you know, I satisfied all the wind conditions and I only had one country that their HDI was lower than 0.7. So I was, like, I was really close to beating it. But – This game is really, really difficult. (laughs) Um, So part of that review that we were referencing, there's a part later at the end. I don't remember if I wrote down the quote here or not. But um, the reviewer is talking uh, about how difficult this game is and basically just says, like, you know, it's so hard. It makes me feel like almost like we can't fix this problem, right?
2: Our planet's very real problems might be insurmountable. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so – and so, like for all of that setup, and Terrell, this is I'm just re-articulating what you said. Now, for all that setup of like, yeah, you can do it. Like, you're yeah. the one who can save this, and all, all of like the the, you know, the ability to control all these regions, even if it's very complex, sort of maybe suggests. If you work really hard, and yeah, if you do work really hard and you learn the game systems really carefully, you can win these scenarios, of course. But they are very, very, very challenging to the extent that, like, a a DLC
2: patched in a quote-unquote easy mode, which is still hard. (laughs) Like, it's still pretty tricky, right? And I think just, like, bring Chakrabarty into this, right? Like, Chakrabarty says, you know, it's really hard for us to imagine a world without humans, right? And in one sense, this game is trying to, like, hold on to that with dear life right you're like you're humans and you must hold on like we have to do everything possible to keep you know especially in, in scenarios like the earth day scenario like I, which i think is kind of like the standard scenario you know like we you know we got to do everything in our power to keep humans relevant and important and that means you know manipulating the levers of the economy and society and technology to keep us alive right but i think in a, in a lot in another way too it also like presents a like a really realistic way of thinking about like what would the world what would like a collapsing global climate look like in our world you know where you know the basis of the fate of the world is it, like immensely fanciful because there's never going to be a centralized global transnational organization that has authority like right the UN is the best we've got in the past 75 years and it has no authority right, right. to do anything sure. and so that's never going to happen and so even in this like wouldn't that be great case, you know? Uh it's still immensely hard and problematic and difficult to deal with the the kind of uh catastrophic and co- uh, consequences of global climate change. And so I think um it's a really kind of neat way to build off Chakrabarty. Absolutely. Um, do we
0: have other thoughts? Yeah. I was going to transition to just go ahead. Oh,
1: no, I, w- I was uh just going to say I think though um The thing – this is sort of a question. So I'm I'm going to out myself at this point as a non-gamer. So this is perhaps (laughs) my question as a non-gamer to all of you gamers. Uh, Get out! (laughs) Yeah. My first question, can I stay? Um, (laughs) My second question, assuming the answer to the first is a reluctant yes, is uh, that does the fact that this is a game, does the fact that, you know, I, I will say, I, at first, didn't think it was fun, but after I played for a while, I started to find it fun. And after I sort of f- totally failed and then like started a new game, and was like, ah, oh, what if I do? It? You know, I started to like really get into the fun of it. Uh, it. Does that ultimately undermine even even supposing the game is meant to somehow send or does whether it's meant to or not send this sort of idea? No matter what you do, you're totally we're boned, right? Yeah. Uh, Does the fact though that nonetheless you're going to be like, I'm going to keep trying to monkey around with the variables, uh, does that still by the sheer function of what a game is and the idea that we are out to control certain factors and thus win the game, uh, does that put us in – let me quote Chakrabarty here. Uh, does that put us in this place where, uh, as Chakrabarty says, the problematic of globalization allows us to read climate change only as a crisis of capitalist management? Mm-hmm. Does that game – does this game put us in that position even if it says that crisis is insoluble? Right.
0: Yeah. I mean this is why I playfully suggested that maybe you're playing as the globe and that like if if part of – and to be a little more serious about it, like if part of – the problem of thinking ecologically is this necessity to inhabit a perspective which we don't have an experience of. In this game, maybe, in a sense, you are you have this perspective or experience of a global force. So, there, like, obviously, we've been reading it as like manager, capitalist, neoliberal, whatever. But maybe it's maybe instead it's like the planet trying to defend itself, right? So, like, maybe this is like. It's not a person. Yes, it says it's the GEO, but let's just push that to the side and say maybe this is the, what the planet is trying to do to save itself. And so maybe somewhere there in this like – in a sort of implicit and not explicit way.
1: But I, I guess my, my comeback to that would be I, – I mean I, I'm really intrigued by your suggestion of playing as the globe. But uh, this at least to my sort of puerile male fantasy structure – this game plays so easily into the idea of like what if you could control everything. Yeah. This plays so easily to the, the idle thoughts I have sometimes when I'm walking around where it's like if I were if I were, you know, uh Elon Musk, here's what I would do to yeah. fix climate change, right? Yeah. Um and this game's like here you go, you can try that now.
2: And I think what Ted's saying is backed up in the actual gameplay too cuz I, I again, I am really like fascinated by that idea, but in the game the enemy is nature kind of still, right? Or like it's, it's cast as like, here's the problem, right? Is that there was this hypercane or there's massive erosion or there's poisoned soil, right? And you have to solve that problem by playing cards that are fundamentally like human-centered, right? By like playing cards that are like, okay, let's harness technology to like put, you know, biofuel or like to turn, to subsidize these things so that like we can uh, build better... Um, uh, resistance against hurricanes Defenses, and stuff like that. Yeah. Defenses, yeah. Yep.
0: No, I, I totally agree. I, I, my, my argument. I would never make the argument that this game sort of, sort of in its in its rules in the moment to moment cards l- allows you to inhabit the global perspective. But maybe the framing. Yeah. Starts. I, I, to I would agree that. with that. And I, I think I think there's something. Maybe to that. a thing that like other games could build off of is like, hey, maybe we can re-emphasize a sort of global perspective. Yeah. Um, I think that. There's
3: maybe a middle point between the two because one of the things that comes to my mind in thinking about that uh, proposition, Derek, is that a planetary defense against climate change might not keep us on the table. Might just say, and there are a number of, I don't even know if you can call them conspiracies because, like, what, how does nature conspire? Um, I put it on the table. But just, like, ways in which various certain catastrophes or happenings are like, nah, this is actually the planet trying to say, you know, you're getting a little violent. Yeah. I'm done with you. But that the planet – there's a version of the planet that can include the human as well. That, I think, gets into the sort of position between, I think, a number of things that we're saying. I think it's, it's weird to think about the planet as the agent here. Yeah, But it opens up some possibilities and, for
0: and, it. And sorry, my last my last point of defense. Since we we all agree that the UN is as good as it gets, what is the GEO? Like yeah. what what is that actually? Yes, it could be the fantasy of the most empowered
2: it's, UN. It's like what like all right people think that like the left UN people is. want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. What they, right. like, they're like this globalist cuck organization. Uh-huh, yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. right,
0: right. <laughs> but like – I don't know. I, I, I'm just sort of tossing this out as like an alternative way to make, since since we actually can't conceive of that as an actual, realizable thing, it could be a fantasy, or it could be a real representation of some sort of global sense of ourselves, trying to act out against. And yes, it's, it's unified in the player, because that's how games work, and it's abstracted,
2: and, you know, shot through with all this other stuff, but. And I do think this might be a good segue to the other game we played. Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, games, I guess. But, is that, I do agree that I think we do need more games that emphasize the global perspective because I think when we talk about climate change we can often get mired into like the specifics of like you know a particular oil pipeline a particular natural disaster a particular thing which are all good and need to be brought aware of right but that an, another another good thing is saying that this is a global problem right mm-hmm. and that these all these individual particular things play into a larger uh potential incipient catastrophe and and if there's a
0: pessimism in fate of the world, I think there's something like an optimism in Thunderbird Strike. Yeah, and I, I you know, just not maybe, maybe it's not even a counterpoint, but it's just like maybe we need the optimism of the specificity yeah, we need both, of Thunderbird Strike. A better way yeah, to frame yeah, yeah, it. yeah. I
2: shouldn't have framed it as a like this is good and this is right. right. Yeah, no, these I, are
0: both important right, things. Exactly, and, and I think that you know, uh, moving into just our, a quick discussion of Thunderbird Strike, um, this game really. Does some work of not putting you in a global perspective, but putting you in a non-human perspective, and this is like a, a common thing in games, um, you know, inhabiting some sort of animal character or something like that. But before before I get into that, I just want to set up this game. This game was made uh, by a uh, professor at, at uh, MSU, along with a team of of some students or maybe graduate students that helped as well. Um, uh, th- their name is Elizabeth LaPensee. They are Anishinaabe, Métis, and Irish. So I think the The first two there are like indigenous people tribes in the uh north american region um and this game is sort of uh it's a very it's a it's a relatively simple game. You play as this thunderbird, which is this sort of you know it, it's 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 drawn in this very um symbolic style i think which is has probably has connections to indigenous art uh and you sort of attack. You know, you strike, you you collect energy and lightning and then you sort of shoot these trucks and these pipes that are building a pipeline. So this is really about like, um, you know, a couple of years ago, there was the the whole movement to resist the pipelines by a lot of indigenous uh, tribes in the U.S. and in Canada and it's, as well. still going on. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Sure. Um, and this game sort of positions you as this as this Thunderbird, which is sort of destroying and getting rid of these things. Um, so it's it's this sort of side scrolling game and uh and you can and you sort of it 's a very short one, but it's 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 really interesting i think in the position that it places you as a player and um you know just to give like giving some background uh it was like it got some grants and then some republican senator in minnesota didn't like it and this is the line from his website. Minnesota taxpayers expect their money to be invested in Minnesota, not in funding an eco-terrorist version of Angry Birds.
2: Good impression. Yeah. You'd probably be like, A, an eco-terrorist version of Angry Birds. <laughs> That's too friendly. It's too nice. It's probably too right though. Um, I love Minnesota. I love, I love the American Northwest. I do too.
0: <laughs> I have some really good friends from there. Like one of my best roommates ever is from, the, from yeah. the Midwest.
1: Wait. Just a point of clarification. A Minnesotan state senator was complaining about a game made in Michigan?
0: Um,
2: I think there was Minnesota money. Like that the, the, a grant to, from maybe like yeah. the government. Okay. Or something. Yeah. yeah that's and good, and good so question. the reason that he says it's eco-terrorism and, you know, that there's, there's this other, you know, growing cloud of controversy around this game, which is that like, or you know, oil people are saying like this encourages violence against pipelines because yeah. literally the final boss of the game is is a pipeline. Yes, it's like a, in the imagined as a snake, right? Yeah. And you kill it because mm-hmm. um, you know, duh. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so they're saying you know this could encourage people to you know start acts of eco terrorism, which like okay, in right. the history of Maybe violence – if you're a
3: five year old and like the same way like I when I was five. I watched Teenage Ninja Turtles and then broke my mother's broom yeah. so I could have, like, a stick. <laughs> the, like, if yeah, if you're stuck at five years old
2: playing this game, maybe that's what you're going to do. And these Sorry, are the Kyle. same people. And not These are not the same people, but it's the same kind of critique of, like, Wolfenstein 2 that's like, this is going to encourage violence against Nazis. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay. Yeah. Sure. In yeah. the history of violence, is, right. like, violence against pipelines really the biggest, right. like, vi- the- incidence of violence in American history? Right. Right? Is eco-terrorism the form of terrorism that is the most problematic and most uh, popular in the US right now?
1: There's a remarkable consistency to that though I have to say uh, in that – I, I at least assume perhaps i 'm making assumptions about the kinds of people that are say oil executives, but uh, these are the same sorts of people who proffer arguments that you know video games are essentially causing mass shootings, uh, which right. I had always thought to be totally bankrupt positions that were being offered in order to like take the, the debate away from say gun control right uh, and so the idea that these people would actually seem to be concerned for their own precious infrastructure, Mm -hmm. uh, suggests that perhaps they do legitimately believe that video games are the problem. Uh, Just sort of a side note. No, it's
0: it's totally consistent with like lots of arguments against games about violence. Sure.
1: sure. Um, Can I ask a question about the side-scrolling aspect? Please do, Uh, Again, as a non-gamer, I'm still in the room, I'll note.
0: Um, Has it been ejected yet?
1: Not yet. Yet. (laughs) So uh, it scrolls from right to left, uh, which uh, perhaps that's common. I don't know. But for me as a person mostly familiar with, say, Mario Brothers, which scrolls from left to right, I couldn't help but wonder if that's supposed to be uh, either an Either a you know literal rolling back of time or a you know rejection of a uh Western European kind of way you know notion of progress. You know, this is the undoing the enlightenment in some sense. I like right? both
2: of those interpretations, uh, yeah. actually. I, I was like I was initially very disoriented playing yeah, the game. It's weird. It, these are one of these there's one of those fundamental concepts of gaming, just like you know, like the the directional pad moves a certain way, the right. like x there are like Two to four buttons, which do certain things, mm-hmm. and like it started, and I was like, "What?" Yeah, like I was yeah. like, "I was like, okay, wait, up is okay, okay, it's not okay. totally reversed, just yeah. the one, yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah." Yeah, I don't know I, I i think it's i I think it's a I think this game is is important um, because it's sort of it's it's an example of, of something much more specific. This is very different than what Chakrabarti or or what even Fate of the World is attempting to do with this sort of large scale perspective. But could still be a really meaningful and important thing, Um, not only for the reason of inhabiting like sort of this symbolic non-human consciousness, but also because it's from the perspective of an indigenous game designer using this indigenous art as a sort of literal – like it's not just a symbolic form of resistance within the game
2: context. It's like a literal resistance, right, to – and so I'm not sure if like, you know, if they're – if the reading style of the indigenous people that they're drawing these art forms from like is right to left and that, that it's like a meta I wonder – yeah. And, you know, even if it's not, I, I think we can read it as like a really interesting way that just kind of oh, yeah. diverges from yeah. Western yeah, 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 I, norms even I, if they are Japanese probably in origin. I, I, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> those exactly. Norms. Yeah. yeah, exactly.
3: I, I think it's a little too um, conceptual frankly. Um, it's sort of just exactly – we don't experience it phenomenologically. Like it didn't right. take me that long to realize, oh. And then I actually didn't even think about it till now. I think what might be even more um, indicative of anything is I got the impression that there really wasn't a fail state. I didn't get the impression that the Thunderbird could die. It could lose its charge and have to recharge again in the clouds. But unless maybe you struck one of the indigenous people on the ground – there it, i think the game loops until you destroy all the machines
0: it's yeah well, you can't first of all you can't lose and you do end like there's an end to it but like there's no there's no fail state really no, in well, any of the
1: levels that's i mean i i sort of had a, a almost pornographic feeling about it that right it's not mm-hmm. it's, it's it's not a game in the sense that like yeah that you can win or lose rather it's like this this uh pleasure based experience of like … living out your fantasy of destroying the infrastructure, yeah. uh, which I, I wonder uh, – you know one of my main – I enjoyed playing the game, uh, but one of my main concerns or questions that I have about, about how it works in terms of, of uh, say, making a difference in the world or something yeah. if, we, if we still want to do those sorts of things <laughs> … Uh, is is whether you know whether it, it essentially just sort of fulfills this pornographic function of like well you can't really get it so just enjoy enjoy your uh, imagined experience with yeah. yourself uh you know enjoy you know enjoy feeling like you're going to destroy the infrastructure and then we can just all you know
0: this is this is interesting because we had a similar discussion around uh, mafia 3 during our our talk and play where a point was brought up as like Wow Lincoln Clay is so powerful, and like it doesn't seem yes, like there are these signals that he's not welcome in certain spaces or that the police are watching him all the time, but that doesn't really impact his his agency he's always ready to fight, run, shoot, drive a car, et cetera um, but I think you know we ha- another of our colleagues made up the point that like if you are a pr- and, and you know i think we're we're taking this game from an eco crit anthropocene perspective but there's also totally like indigenous games perspective here it's like for For the indigenous people who are never represented in games or very rarely so or only as, like, the brave savage or something like that, this is, like, a restorative thing. And that, like, where we might want to call it pornographic or, like, escapist, it actually serves a different function for someone who has a constant sense that they can't do anything. And that maybe this is kind of like an – just in the – like, this is an energizing experience where if you're marginalized or – and these are – I'm not saying these are equivalent, but these are both sort of maybe – experiences might you f- make you feel pessimistic about future of something or if you play fate of the world and you can't like actually win maybe you need
2: a little bit of thunderbird yep. strike to sort of like keep you yeah. going or something like that you know um, yeah. i think it actually weirdly resonates with current debates over the movie black panther okay uh where you know yeah like, yeah, yeah a lot there's it's it, the movie has received a lot of praise and some criticism saying like you know why do we have to imagine a, a new world for Africa with like this like nation that's really really rich and that's why they're able to do all these good things it's like well it's a fundamentally imaginative space fiction, obviously, right? <laughs> right? But that, like, that offers a new way of thinking about the, Africa's past, like the the future of 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 uh, black black people in the, in the world, right? That is not necessarily bound to like the history of imperialism and colonialism, right? And so, like, yeah, on the one hand, that is rewriting history, or like a movie like that, or you know, a game like Thunderbird Strike is. Saying something that hasn 't happened and is in I guess some sense ignoring a long history of like oppression and colonialism and imperialism, but it 's also like to not be in that world, you have to imagine something outside of it right right, and so right. there should be space I think for both of these things right, right. for for be, for being aware of the importance of power and class and Um, capitalism in oppressing people and forming structures of oppression but also in in having those fundamental imaginative spaces that allow you to be outside of that in some way
0: and games are a way that people encounter this stuff sometimes sometimes it's just like hey this person's never gonna read a book of eco-criticism or like think about climate change but like maybe they play one of these games and that's like
2: a stepping stone yeah right for someone to think like um oh maybe like you know, industry in this sense is kind of damaging, right? right? They can play a game and be like, you know, maybe not a, the pipeline isn't a snake and the trucks aren't these like monsters, you know? But like, right. wow, I never thought of like how much that is like damaging the environment or yeah, like sure. a, a, a existing. It really, it is an existent material thing as opposed to this idea. It's like a pipeline somewhere in Canada, right? right? Or right. Sometime, sometime, Why is the it impossible
3: lakes? to read Richard Delgado's takes on critical race theory and also watch Black Panther? Right. Is also yeah. totally possible to read something like um, red skin, white masks, and play this game. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. that those those things could, could be on the table at the same time. Right. And I guess, you know, the thing that kind of makes me upset that this game got so much pushback is it's very clearly, like, I'm sure and I'm actually kind of curious as to um, the design team's makeup, like what discipline uh, is um, the designer a professor of, um, et cetera, et cetera. Because, like, I'm sure this was, like, a first go at something, right? Like it's a finished product, but the fact that there's not really a fail state, the fact that you kind of have to surmise that the Thunderbird is a part of something a bit larger. And even the, there's some, there's some, I think intended hokiness. I mean, like, for example, there's not really a HUD. The fact that, most of the indications of the game's state, like your energy level, is told by, like, recharge. Like, some dude's just like, recharge. And yeah. And this, this, is that, and the other. Like, it's very clear, like, you know, this was kind of, you know. They
0: were having fun with it. We're,
3: we're having some fun, and, and hopefully this catches on. Like, hopefully right. this is kind of an expression coming from an indigenous perspective that can do some things, and we can get some funds to have another go. And exactly. maybe then we can start to play a little bit and really think about how we can use the mechanics to maybe do both a critical take and a... You know, just sort of reparative take, et cetera, et cetera. But we'll probably not see that. And again, something that none of us in this room really understand, myself included, making a game is
1: really, 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 really hard. Yeah. So I I think though what I'm I'm hearing you say, Terrell, in some sense is like – it would be great if they could make this game with the budget and uh, sensibilities with which Black Panther was made, right? Like, right. go back and then you would be like, wow, now not only does budget, it accomplish yes, these things- Budget, yes,
3: sensibilities, asterisks. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. my ses- At that scale of the day. is what you mean, right.
1: Yeah. yeah. Right, well, at that scale, but also with that, like, I mean, the reason, I guess by sensibilities, yeah. I mean, the, the attention to, like, success at the box office, right? The, mm-hmm. like, the, the idea that, like, hey, we know how to make a movie that people are going to, like, pay a shit ton of money to watch. And right. by the same, like, mm-hmm. like, you know, if they were to remake this game with a ton of money and, you know, not only the goal of, like, being like, hey, we're going to, like, blow up some infrastructure and, you know, give you this uh, perhaps indigenous perspective uh, or this non-human perspective but also the idea of, like, you're going to pay money to play it because it's so awesome. Because it's just, like, so dope. You, so that all the yeah. kids are out there being like, oh, I want to blow up some more infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, cool. I think that that's going to do it for us. Um Thank you so much, Ted, for joining us for this episode. Thank you guys for episode. having me. This is so You're much fun. A middling guest. <laughs> Kyle – but Kyle let you stay, right. which is – I got to say – not all of And
3: our you guests. don't have any ropes, and your mouth isn't sore because you had to rip duct tape off yeah. of it.
2: Please none listen of, to the last episode of for context. Episode 9A, 9B, Revisiting the Past. Shit gets kinky. <laughs> um,
0: I want to say thanks to the Curb Center for Art, Enterprise, and Public Policy at Vanderbilt University for providing support. That's equipment, space, time, and especially Jay Clayton. Uh, shout out to Haystack. It's, great. it's a great program. Thank you for helping make this project possible. I want to thank Visager. For the use of their freely available song, The Plateau at Night, which is our intro and our outro song. Um, Up next, we have uh, another episode coming up with another special guest, a a guest we've had once before, Sabine Ahmed. And we're going to be looking at Persona 5 and some of the conversations happening around the hashtag Me Too movement. And Terrell is actually going to take the lead on this one, so I'm excited to see where that one goes. Welcome to my world. You are all <laughs> in so much trouble. <laughs> um, I've also been working on this RPG, this Faster Than Light RPG that we're going to try and try out as our like first Let's Play series. And Kyle Things is smiling, get smiling nervously. We'll see if it works. I, uh, we're going to test it out. If it goes well, we'll put it up, and if it goes poorly, we might put it up anyway. So keep your eyes we'll on our YouTube it. page. Yeah, we. You can also check out the uh, uh, talk and play 03, which is about Mafia three and race invisibility. Terrell and I uh, were on that and took a took a lead
2: in organizing that, and that was really fun. And you should check that out. And I think that's going to do it for us. So as again, always, if we didn't get to anything that's interesting that, that interested you or like a big part of this, this this is a pretty long episode, um, and I think we might have you know gone over some things not as in-depth as we want to so it, it of could course, have been even longer It could uh, have feel free, free to reach out to us <laughs> on Twitter yeah yeah so I'm at digital underscore Derek um, I'm at E underscore Kyle underscore Romero Black Socrates Ted if people have questions for you
0: where should they send them uh,
1: I mean they could reach out to me at Twitter as well uh, yeah. at, at Ted the goat
0: one <laughs> <laughs> beautiful thanks Ted and uh, we will see you guys next time
2: great bye guys be well thank you
0: Ha <laughs>